Do you get weary? Do you have weeks? Do you have months? Do you have seasons of weariness? Well, it's really not surprising. Weariness is part of the human condition in this fallen and sometimes frustrating world. The preacher says in Ecclesiastes, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. What has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Repetition, monotony, toil, struggle, labor, stress, these things all make us weary. I was thinking about weariness this morning. It's kind of a novelty to have to shovel the driveway this year. But last year it wasn't the case. And by this time last year, after I'd probably shoveled the driveway for the 90th time during the season, I definitely was weary of it. But even more seriously, there are things that in their nature are good and loving, but we get weary about it. Uh, Moms and dads, I know you love your children, but there comes a point where there's a certain weariness in another diaper, I'm sure. Um, maybe having to correct something for the umpteenth time. Those things will start to bring some weariness to us. Illness and pain makes us weary. Some people have had to deal with chronic things for many months or years, and we can get so tired and beaten down by that. Our work, maybe you love your job, but sometimes... The hours can get very long and you can get weary of that. Or maybe you've had to work for a while or for a long while for a boss who's particularly difficult. That will make you very weary. I'll testify to that one from a couple of, well, more than a couple of former bosses, I think. On the other hand, looking for work. I know unemployment has been a difficult thing. That can make us weary as we continue to try and try to find work economic situation, trying to make things, make ends meet, that can make us weary also. Getting older, fighting some of the things that come with getting older, pushing back against aging, some of those things can weary us. I know I do not run or jump like I used to, nowhere near as fast or as high. Not that I was really that fast or that high a jumper to begin with. Uh, but I can't do that. You know, there, there are days I get up out of a chair and my knees are a little stiff. Uh, my back will ache. And I see that little progression, you know, even looking in the mirror, a little more gray hair or whatever. Those things can make us a little weary as we feel ourselves starting to wind down as we head towards uh, our final rest with God. Even our own remaining sin in us, even as those washed by the blood of Christ, we still get disturbed and, and we should find some disturbance in those things that remain in us and, and when we see us ourselves doing the same thing again and again that can make us feel weary as well so indeed weariness is part of life in this fallen world but we can ease some of that weariness we can ease that weariness as we remember the one in whom we rest and that's our Lord Jesus Christ But this weariness that we're in now, this weariness has not always been. And one day it will be banished. You know, as we had read to us, on the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done and He rested 
on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And that seventh day rest that that began at the completion of creation, that is that rest that God is inviting us into now. God took the man that he had created and he brought him into his rest right there at the beginning. The Garden of Eden, this beautiful paradise, this temple where God and man could dwell together, where God could walk in the cool of the garden with him. That was that first rest. Now you might ask, was that really rest? Didn't God put Adam in that garden to work and tend that garden? We have to think about those words, work and keep. Uh, Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. That's language that's very much like the work of the Levite priests in the tabernacle, out in the wilderness, the things that they would do. Uh, Numbers 3 uh, reads like this, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron the priest that they may minister to him. Minister is like the word work in the original Hebrew. They shall keep guard over him. Guard is like the word keep. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. So what was going on there? Adam was to tend a holy sanctuary a paradise in where God dwelled with man. His work was like the priest of a temple watching over a holy place. Not a time of toil, but a time of joy as he, as he upheld the place, as he watched over it. It's not one where later on where he had to scratch out his subsistence out of the soil. Not one like that where he had to work by the sweat of his brow, but one that was a place of joy where the trees were full of fruit for him to eat. A place of real joy. But as we know so familiarly, and I know the, uh, the uh, class that has been in uh, Brother Ken's class in Sunday school has been going through Genesis, and you know very well how man rebelled. Our first parents wanted to be wise like God, but they were deceived. And now, because of that, we live in what uh, Dr. Al Mohler, who is president of Southern Baptist Seminary, it's what he always calls living in a Genesis 3 world. We live this side of the fall, and that explains a lot. In fact, I think us as Christians, we as Christians, when we think about a Genesis 3 world, we can make sense of the world where a lot of people can't. You probably have friends or coworkers who are very much like a friend of mine, who has a very different view on the world than we would have. We understand about man's fallen nature and that no one is righteous outside of Christ and wearing his righteousness. But this friend of mine says, well, you know, my view is that most people are good. Most people are very good. And then he finds evil only in uh, evangelical Christians, conservative Republicans, and people who work for Fox, no- Fox News. Those are the evil ones to him. He doesn't see the understanding of the worldview uh, that we would have as Christians, so the world doesn't make sense to him. And so he's always trying to find ways where man can change things and manipulate things and spend money on things to make evil go away. But we understand what the world is really like. 
we understand the fallen nature of man and understand that Christ will come to straighten that all out, wipe all this out, set it on fire, cleanse it, and bring us a new heavens and a new earth in which we can dwell without all of this stuff that makes us weary. And so since we're in this Genesis 3 world, toil and illness and aging and repetition and our remaining sin, all those are things that have become our lot. So from that point on, the rest of human history has been about the unfolding of God's plan to bring a redeemed people into His rest in Christ. Abraham looked forward to that rest. Hebrews 11 reminds us Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And as God brought the nation of Israel forth out of Egypt, God gave them these Sabbaths as a reminder of that eternal rest. But there's more than just a picture of Christ to be fulfilled in these Sabbath rests. These also show us a pattern of rest. These Sabbaths show us that it's necessary for our bodies in this fallen world, in this weary world, to take some rest, just as our rest in Christ will rest our weary souls. And for Israel, obeying the Sabbath was more than just following a regulation. Obeying the Sabbath for Israel was showing faith in God's provision for them. And when we rest in Him, we show faith in His provision for us. So let's take a look at this in the context of this passage. This is something, we could mine this thing for weeks. We're going to kind of take a couple of things out of this passage for today. And maybe at another time we could really look forward. And in fact, maybe when Pastor Reed is refreshed, uh, we may even delve deeply into this beautiful book. But we see time after time, even as God gave His people rest, they failed to trust Him in that rest. We mentioned the garden in Genesis 3. God gave our parents, our first parents, rest in the garden. And they rebelled and they were cast out of there. Well, let's fast forward to Exodus chapter 16. As the Israelites have come out of Egypt, the Red Sea has been parted and they're in the wilderness And as they wandered through the wilderness, they were hungry and they started to grumble. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. This is Exodus 16. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. But what happened there? Some of them right away did not have faith that there would be enough manna for the next day. The seventh day they went out there not trusting God and went out and looked for manna on the seventh day. And starting in verse 27 of that chapter of Exodus, on the seventh day some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day He gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. And then later on, as they didn't behave and they didn't trust and they didn't obey, God codified the Sabbath for Israel when he gave the law. And we see that in Exodus 20. He said to them, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, 
or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Well, they still didn't obey. And as we see a pattern, we'll get to in a moment, we see what happens as there's this continuous pattern of disobedience with the Israelites. In Exodus 31, when, when God gives the law a second time on new tablets after Moses, in disgust at the golden calf, had smashed the first set, God says, six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. What started as a gift from God and what was to be received by faith then had to become law, and then it had to become law with severe punishment, punishable by death. As Paul tells us in Galatians, the law was added because of transgressions. They were not faithful and God had to continue to put boundaries and laws around Israel because they would not trust Him for that rest. It was a commemoration to Israel of the rest that He entered into on that seventh day at the completion of creation. It was a commemoration of the future Sabbath rest for God's people. He gave them also a Sabbath to rest their physical weariness, but their faithlessness had led to law and punishment. God now also commemorated His rest and provided for His people in Sabbaths for the land. And that we find in Leviticus 25. Just a snippet from there. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself, and for your male and female slaves, and for your hired worker and the sojourner who lives with you, and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land. All its yield shall be for food. So God commanded that every seventh year would be a rest from agricultural activities on that land of Canaan they would enter into. For six years they'd farm the land, then they'd give one year of rest to the land. Now, part of that is really some good practical agricultural advice, right? We see that now where farmers will rotate crops or rest a field, or maybe they, I'm trying to remember back when my uncle was a dairy farmer, you know, maybe he'd grow something on the land and let it uh, just grow uh, alfalfa or something for a year. Farmers do do that now, but it also recognizes through this Sabbath of the land that God freely bestows His produce on His people. God provides for His people. And they needed to trust Him in that, that He would provide for them as they rested the land for that. But eventually, after Israel moved into that promised land, they didn't obey those Sabbaths for the land. Even though right when God had commanded to them to give that Sabbath, He warned what would happen if they didn't. In... uh, Verse 27 of that chapter. But in spite of this, you will 
not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters, and I will destroy your high places, and cut down your incense altars, and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols, and my soul will abhor you, and I will lay your cities waste, and will make your sanctuaries desolate, and I will not smell your pleasing aromas. And I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheath the sword after you. And your land shall be a desolation and your cities shall be a waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it is desolate while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. And that dispersion of Israel, that 70-year exile of Judah, is the fulfillment of that. God promised that would happen, and he did see that his land had its rest. So that gets us to Psalm 95, which is quoted in this passage we had read this morning. The writer of Hebrews refers to this call by David to believe as David reminds the people of what happened in the desert. Beginning in verse 16, for those who were, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. You remember the account in Numbers chapter 14. The Israelites are getting ready to enter into the land and they sent spies to spy out the land of Canaan. And the spies came back with their report. And when they returned, all but Joshua and Caleb had given them a bad report because the spies were afraid of the people who lived there. Rather than obeying God and trusting God and taking the land, they rebelled. And there in Numbers 14, the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I've heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies will fall in this wilderness, and all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell. God had prepared a rest for them in Canaan. It wasn't the final rest that we're talking about here, but it was a rest from their journey, a place where they could be His people. And Israel's faithlessness kept them from the land as well. Only Joshua and Caleb from that generation entered. Even Moses in his rebellion stood from afar and saw the land, but he did not enter either. So these people lacked faith in God's provision for them. Their disobedience of the Sabbaths was a picture of their mistrust of him. And because of that, he did not permit them to enter his rest in Canaan. Now these Sabbaths to Israel are also pictures for us of that eternal rest in Christ. Faith in God is what is the obedience required of us. It's our faith that produces the obedience in other things. 
And as it says further along in Hebrews, without faith it's impossible to please God. So that's the backstory, as they say. Let's take a look at what it means to be entering God's rest. Verse 9 of Hebrews 4 says, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now as we've looked at here, that rest that remains is not an entrance into a physical land. Uh, In verse 8 it says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. And that rest that remains is not a continuation of a weekly Sabbath as was given to Israel. In fact, there are some who would argue that that phrase, the remains of Sabbath rest for the people of God, means that there is a remainder of Sabbath keeping for the people of God. That is not what this passage is telling us. It's telling us that eternal rest is what still remains for us to enter. Our rest, simply put, is Christ. For whoever has entered God's rest is also rested from his works as God did from his. We need to understand that all these Sabbaths are but a shadow, a foretelling, a picture ahead of time of Christ. Paul reminds us of this in in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. He says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These things are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is Christ. Without faith, even for Israel, even for the rigid Sabbath keeper, keeping a Sabbath without faith was merely ritual. Do you remember in the beginning of Isaiah, God speaks out against this empty, faithless ritual. Starting in verse 12 of that chapter, he says, When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings, incense, is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Israel is going through these rituals, but the faith in God was not there. Or as Jesus said many years later to the Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So these are people who were going through ritual. They weren't trusting God, they were trusting ritual as if that very performance of something could save them rather than God's sovereign grace on them. And for us, then, resting in Christ means being His by faith and trusting Him not just for your justification, not just so you can be declared righteous, but also trusting Him for your sanctification, which is what the writer of Hebrews gets to in verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Well, what is that striving? Is it trying in our flesh to strictly follow a bunch of rules so that we can 
look holy so that we can feel self-righteous? Is it about following a checklist? Or is it by looking to Christ? Is that what we're called to do when we strive to enter His rest? And Paul the Apostle gives us the answer. Even just a little later in Colossians from the passage I mentioned before. He writes, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But there are no value in stopping the indulgence to the flesh. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. In God, when Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. It's Colossians 2, 20-3-4. So it is to Christ that we look. He is our rest. Our growth in holiness comes not from adding something to our justification. It is living as one who has been justified, forgiven, and washed by His blood. That's our rest. It's not moving beyond our justification. It is moving deeper into the reality of our justification. Somebody who I've really enjoyed reading as of late is Pastor Tullian Chavidjian. He's the grandson of Billy Graham. He, through a merger of churches, uh, now has the pulpit where D. James Kennedy spoke for many, many years. And D. James Kennedy was a preacher who spoke a lot about Christians in the world and political things and so forth like that. And it was a shock to that congregation and caused some turmoil for a while, even with some of D. James Kennedy's children, when Tully and Chavidjian started to emphasize the gospel. And one of the things that he wrote that I think is so, so appropriate with what we're speaking about here he writes, I used to think that when the Apostle Paul tells us to work out our salvation, it meant go out and get more of what you don't have. Go out and get more patience, get more strength, get more joy, get more love, and so on. But after reading the Bible more carefully, I now understand that Christian growth does not work by working hard to get something you don't have. Rather, Christian growth happens by working hard to daily swim in the reality of what you do have. Believing again and again the gospel of God's free justifying grace every day is the hard work we're called to do. Isn't that something? Isn't that completely counterintuitive to who we are? That our hard work is believing and trusting rather than doing, rather than trying to wash ourselves? You've already been washed in the blood of Christ. Remember, Remember when Jesus washes the feet of the disciples and He tells Peter He's already clean. We need a little foot washing. We're already clean in the blood of Christ. I know some of you, uh, the young women, studied uh, a book called Because He Loves Me from Elise Fitzpatrick. And she wrote in there, one reason we don't grow in ordinary grateful obedience as we should is that we've got amnesia. 
We've forgotten that we are cleansed from our sins. In other words, ongoing failure in our growth is the direct result of failing to remember God's love for us in the Gospel. If we fail to remember our justification, redemption, and reconciliation, we will struggle in our sanctification. And indeed, didn't Jesus promise to us that it is not burdensome to follow Him? You probably know these verses. Matthew 11, Come to Me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For My yoke is easy and My burden is light. While this world is indeed weary and will be until we head into that eternal rest, we who believe are already in His rest. We are already, as we heard, seated with Him in the heavenly places. It's a wonderful thing to remember, especially when things are getting particularly weary. The Sabbaths are but a shadow. The substance is Christ, and our ultimate rest is in Him. But let's remember one more thing, though. While we do not live under a Sabbath law in the New Covenant, God has indeed instructed us in His Scripture and given us patterns to follow. And indeed, that that Old Covenant law, those regulations, were nailed to the cross with Christ. He fulfilled those on our behalf so that we could live in His law of love. But we do learn from these things that have been taught to us. And Paul emphasizes that in a couple places for us. He tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, Now these things happen to them as an example, speaking of the kind of thing we just talked about, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Or the familiar words of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So while we don't have a Sabbath law like we saw there, for Israel, while we don't have those regulations, we do see some things from Scripture. We see days and seasons of rest are necessary. God has given us the sun and moon for seasons and for days and for years. As we remember the words of Ecclesiastes, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And with that in mind, today we do send our dear brother Pastor Reed on a season of rest. For this, there is indeed a season. And uh, I guess if we're going to learn from Scripture, as we learn from the Sabbaths of the land, um, his is overdue also. Of course, we're not exiling him, right? We're welcoming back his, him as back as soon as he's ready to come back. <laughs> I mean, we're, what we're doing is giving him uh, probably even far less rest than he deserves. But I know Pastor Reed knows this as well as anybody in this room that ultimately his rest is in Christ. And he's somebody who has truly believed that and has truly taught us that so well uh, in more than a decade and a half of service 
as uh, the preaching, teaching pastor here at ECF. There's a rest coming up that he needs, but oh, what a rest awaits him in Christ. Now, he's already in that now like we are, but that rest in glory, that is going to be something else. That rest in the garden, even, for that brief time with, with Adam and Eve, we don't really know how long that is. I like to think that it was not very long. I don't think they lasted very long. If they're like us, I don't know if they made it through the afternoon. But the rest that we're going to see in glory is going to be far greater from that, than that when uh, Christ meets His bride and we're together with Him. So indeed, brothers and sisters, there remains a rest for the people of God and our rest, beloved, is Christ. Christ has obeyed God the Father perfectly for us, believer. Christ has paid the price for sin for us. Christ has risen from the dead for us. And Christ has given those of us who believe His Spirit as the down payment for that eternal rest in Him. And let's not forget about the Holy Spirit. If you mind me having a little sidebar here. I've been reading the book Forgotten God by Francis Chan. And he talks about how modern evangelicalism, the modern church has sometimes all but forgotten the Holy Spirit. I mean, even as we recite our creed each week, we even see, and I believe in the Holy Spirit, sort of like send Him in there. I wonder if maybe we could write a bigger expansion there of what the Holy Spirit means to us. Because that's the comfort of who Jesus sent to us when He left. He said, greater things than I you will do because you will have the Holy Spirit. And indeed, it's the Holy Spirit that is our guarantee, our down payment for what we will have. That's how we're already in that rest. We have the Spirit of the living God dwelling in us as believers. And we need to turn to and rely on that Holy Spirit all the time, but certainly in the next few months. It's His movement among us that will show whether we're truly a church of God, whether there can be a movement of revival among us. It's the Holy Spirit in there that is speaking the Word of God to us. It's the Holy Spirit in you who is conforming you to Christ, who's the one in you who will change you so that one day you'll see Christ as He really is because you'll be like Him. So let's not forget about that Holy Spirit doing that work in there. We'll be talking about the Holy Spirit on Wednesday night. Maybe we'll take about 10, 12 weeks to do that. But as the psalmist said today, if you have heard the voice of Jesus calling to you, do not harden your heart. If you're not a believer, if you're not sure if you're a believer, if maybe you've kind of gone through the rituals like Israel did, but haven't been changed by that Spirit of Christ in you, today may be your day of salvation. Therefore, while the promise of entering Christ's rest still stands, while it still stands, turn to Him and enter that rest from your weariness. Your toil, your despair, the weariness of your soul, as you may even wonder, what lies ahead for me after this time, after this short, brief blinking of an eye that we have here? Turn to Him 
and turn from that. That rest remains, and that rest remains for those who trust Christ. Rest in Christ, rest in Him to provide and trust Him that you can take that temporal rest now that's part of life. We can trust that He will provide. You know, as, as Jesus told us, He knows the numbers of hairs on your head. He cares about the birds. He cares about you so much. He loves you more than you ever could know. He sings over you. There was great rejoicing in heaven when you came to Him. You can trust somebody like that, can't you? And you can trust that He'll take care of things if you take some time to rest. Six days shall you work. Take a day off once in a while. And trust Christ. Trust Him for your soul. Trust Him and enter into that eternal rest. That eternal rest that brings everlasting life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, right from the beginning, You created a universe with the earth at the center of Your focus where Your creatures could bear Your image and rest with You and glorify You and be provided for for You. That wasn't good enough for us. We had to rebel. And since then, weariness and toil and struggle has, has been our lot. But we know what lies ahead takes all of that struggle and weariness away. Even now as we struggle, You're so good to us. You see that we're clothed and fed. And we don't even know the beginning of struggle. We have it so good now. For millennia, our ancestors toiled and struggled, worked from sunrise to sundown to eke out an existence because our first parents rebelled. But right from the beginning, you had the cross in mind. The Lamb slain. From before the foundations of the world, you knew us. We're ready to call us to you into that eternal Sabbath rest. Father, I pray that you would give comfort to everyone here that they could rely on your Spirit, look to the cross, and know that they too have entered that rest. That the hard work you've called us to do is simply trusting you, believing you, and having faith that your Son died, rose, and ascended on our behalf. Father, we pray that this season of rest for our brother will be joyful and restful and refreshing. And as we hear some more worship and song and have a chance to express our gratefulness to him, we ask that you would continue to bless this sweet time we've had together today. We thank you and praise you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.